0: There was a single mom, kind of fascinating story, a single mom who complained her local grocery would not carry uh, six packs of eggs. They only had a dozen, you know, and they do sell those six packs, and she was really discouraged for a long time, complained about it. Finally, one day, to her surprise, she goes into the store, and there they were, six packs of eggs. She was so excited, she bought two. So, the little things in life, right? The little things in life. There was that Facebook page, that lady who posted on Facebook as well, to the guy who stole my antidepressants. I hope you're happy now. So, anyway. As I said, we're on week four of our series here, more to the story. And another powerful story today. As we look at this idea, as we journey with Jesus to the cross and out the other side of the empty tomb, and we're looking at each of these stories, these miracles, these encounters we're looking at the more of the story we've seen in the story of the Good Samaritan and when Jesus turned the water into wine and last week with a nobleman's son. We've seen this basic reality play out. Here's our big idea for the whole series. Jesus puts the gospel into everyday language. And so he takes the gospel, the, <clears throat> the, the Easter narrative, and he puts it into everyday language. Language that we can understand it, and, and he weeds it into the story in sometimes surprising ways, like with the Good Samaritan or the the, the wedding, and then when you turn the water into wine, the gospel's in there, and, and it's very obvious if you just look and look at some of the phraseology and some of the symbolism. It's really incredibly powerful. In fact, we've looked at uh, this kind of as a key verse for this series. John, as I said, John has eight of these signs, not seven, but there's actually eight. And he has eight of these miraculous signs um, that point us to Christ. And it says this in John 20 at the end of his book. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples beyond these eight, which are not written in this book, but these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that by believing, you may have life in His name. And so He does these miracles with a a very distinct purpose, that we would know who Jesus Christ is as the Messiah, and that we would be able to find life in His name. And today we're going to be in John 5. Thanks, Matt, for reading that earlier so beautifully. What a great story. This lame man there by the pool of Bethesda, been there 38 years, and he is going to find life in Christ today. Now, I don't know what level of life he found in Christ That's kind of the ironic part of this whole story, but he does find and inter uh, intersect with the source of life. That's the series title, or that's the message title today: Finding the Source of Life. And as I was thinking about this message this morning, I was thinking about the past two years. It's about two years ago, right? About now is when COVID landed, right, and took over our country and invaded all of our lives. And there was a really kind of a dark side to COVID that we didn't really. catch it first or notice it first and we should have because it's fascinating how quickly this became a reality but as we were focused on our physical health we were missing the emotional, mental, and spiritual implications of COVID and how it was affecting, affecting people's health. Or people's health. I have one uh, example here. Here's one article um, I will share. Yeah, one article here. 25% of young Americans are considering suicide amid coronavirus. This was written back in uh, August of 2020 20 and uh, june of 2020 so this is like about six months after covid has invaded our lives it's that summer here's what it says more than a quarter of u.s 18 to 24 year olds have seriously considered suicide as the coronavirus pandemic continues to have a significant adverse impact on mental health the finding was in the cdc's weekly report the coronavirus, health, um, the coronavirus pandemic has been associated with an increase in mental health difficulties for a range of reasons, including both the morbidity of the disease itself and issues such as social distancing and stay-at-home orders. Nearly 41% of all respondents reported at least one adverse mental or behavioral health condition overall, with 31% saying they had experienced symptoms of anxiety or depression in the 30 days before taking the survey. However, the pandemic appears to have had a particularly detrimental effect on people in the 18- to 24-year-old age group. 75% of young people reported having at least one adverse mental or behavioral health symptom, making them by far the most impacted demographic. 63% of 18- to 24-year-olds reported symptoms of anxiety or depression, 25% 25% reported using substances to cope with pandemic related stress or conditions and 25.5% of young people said they had seriously considered suicide within 30 days before taking the survey. And that was a kind of a combination of two articles written that summer right after covid had invaded our lives and it's really fascinating we see the detrimental side effects this had on our emotional mental and spiritual well-being. In fact, in Japan, in one month, in October of 2020, they had more people die from suicide than died the whole year from COVID, the physical side of COVID. In fact, they appointed a loneliness minister to help deal with that problem in their country. And that takes us to, to John 5 this morning. And can you see the immediate connection? We're talking like... Four, five, six months after COVID invades us, and we have all of these issues that are, you know, we're grappling with mentally and emotionally and spiritually. Here's a man for 38 years, 38 years been an invalid, 38 years been laying outside this pool, it seems like, just begging, just hoping that someone will help him get in this pool and find healing. And he's going to find that today in today's story. Here's the big idea for today's message. Pop psychology is no match for biblical theology. The pop psychology of this world, whatever the world's selling, whatever Oprah's selling you or whatever you might find on the world or you know, on the most popular podcast, it is no match for biblical theology. And we will see that today as we get into the more of the story here. And in a sense, this underscores what this series is about. We have to be careful of the danger as the church today of being deceived into preaching the have-truths of, self, of the self-help of pop psychology, all while missing out on the life-changing truth of biblical theology. And what the Bible preaches, what the Bible teaches, is 100% the truth. And there is something about reading and studying and understanding God's word and letting God's word come into your spirit and into your soul and transforming you. And theology can be a scary word to some, but it need not be. Theology is just the study of God. Biblical theology is the study of God through the Bible. What does the Bible say about God? What do these eight miracles, these eight signs say about Jesus? He's the Messiah. You can find life in his name. He is the source of all life. Let me show you one thing before we get into this today. I want to talk about one thing, and that's understanding us and the makeup of man. And look at this verse here in 1 Thessalonians 5.23. We think about who we are as people, how we intersect, how we intersect with the world, how we relate to God. Well, we know that we were created in God's image, right? And here's one example of that. 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself, writes Paul, sanctify you completely. What's completely? May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are a spirit. We are a soul. We are a body. Just as God is a triune being, we are in a sense a triune being. We are our own three in one, not in the same way the deity is, but that's the nature of who we are. So let me me explain this to you, because I couldn't, you know, I was thinking back, I couldn't have explained this 25 years ago when I started in ministry. Today, I have a really good handle on who we are, the makeup of man and who we are. Look at it like this, understanding us. Now, here's the reality, who I am before I'm saved and after I'm saved is entirely different. So the makeup of man before I am saved, here it is, before salvation, in the flesh, who am I? I am a soul. What is my soul? My soul is my personality. It's my thinker. It's my feeler. It's my chooser. That's who I am. I'm a soul. I have a personality. I make decisions. I feel. And then, I have a spirit. And my spirit, thanks to Adam and Eve, my spirit is dead to God. So I have no relationship with God. I am spiritually dead. I'm dead to God. And I live in a body. So I'm a soul that has a spirit and lives in a body. But then... Well, then we get saved. Then we come into contact with the gospel. We make a decision for Christ. We believe and receive. And then what happens? Well, then, now, after salvation in Christ, I'm no longer a soul. Now I'm a spirit, which is alive to God. His spirit has come into my spirit and made me fully alive to God. Romans 8, my spirit has a conversation with God's Holy Spirit in me. They bear witness. He bears witness with my spirit. And then... I'm a spirit that has a soul. I still have a personality, right? I still tell my jokes. I still think and feel and choose, and I live in a body. So after salvation, I'm a spirit that has a soul and live in a body. This is who I am. This is, the, this is who Jesus is going to encounter outside this pool of Bethesda. And I would say the man outside the pool of Bethesda is not saved, does not know Christ. His spirit is dead to God. And again, I don't know how that actually works before the cross because the dynamic of salvation in the Old Testament before the cross is not fully comprehended, I think, by how God operated. But this is for you and I today after the cross. So today's big idea again, pop psychology is no match for biblical theology. It's no match for understanding. Let me tell you, pop psychology can't tell you that. They can't tell you who you are. And the reason why it's so important that we know that we are a spirit, not a soul, because that's why we always say, right, we, our identity is in Christ. My identity is not in my personality or in my feelings. My identity is in Christ. So six lessons about the source of life. Let's try to run through these here and see if we get through these pretty quickly. Now, there is in Jerusalem, verses 2 and 3 and 5 there, uh, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, labeled, and paralyzed. And the first lesson is simply this, people can be superstitious. People can be superstitious, right? We, we know how that works in the world today. And, and here's, here's the point of why I'm saying this, is because when it comes to this pool, maybe your first question is my first question. Every time I read this, I wrestle with this. Okay, can this pool really heal? Is this pool really a natural, miraculously, supernaturally healing pool? Like, could this make this lame man walk again? And here's the reality. We can't know for certain about the claims of this pool. We can't. Now, there's a picture of the pool. Supposedly, that's a picture of these pools. And What we know about the pool is that that, uh, it did exist. We know that it was uh, uh, excavated. It was dug up. It's been verified that it really existed. The pool of Bethesda means house of mercy. And, and what we really know is that people thought it healed. Whether it really healed or not, that's another question. We really don't know. People can be superstitious. The other thing we know here is that verses 3 and 4 in our text, um, well, I don't, I don't even think it was probably in Matt's Bible i don't, I didn't even listen real close when he was reading there to to realize, but here's verses three and four you'll find this in the king james Bible you'll find this that that it that that translate their bible from certain uh certain manuscripts and it says that they were all waiting there by the pool, waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. And that's not in a lot of translations. That's just not there. And so the theory is that that was kind of like commentary that got added into some of these older, uh, older manuscripts that the King James was translated from. And it does interpret verse 7 like this man saying I can't get in the waters to be healed and, um, and so, so whether this is a legitimate healing pool or not I am actually skeptical I don't think that this pool healed that way I don't think that's the way God would have operated and, um, and I think as we look at the story we'll see there's more power in the reality that this, heal, this pool really couldn't heal than it could really heal when you look at the spiritual symbolic nature of this whole story not going to spend a lot of time here because it really is irrelevant to the story anyway. It doesn't matter if this pool can heal or not. Some people have likened it to maybe this. Here are the Saratoga mineral bass. Discover the allure of the mineral baths in Saratoga Springs, New York, which have long been celebrated for their amazing healing qualities and health-enhancing minerals. The bubbling mineral springs of Saratoga put forth cold, carbonated water from deep within the earth. Bathing in these effervescent waters is a natural way to relieve stress, relax, and refresh the body. The benefits of the mineral water were well known to the Native Americans who originally lived in the region, as they believed the water had healing and medicinal properties and highly revered it. So that could be what this pool of Bethesda is. It could just be a natural, not a supernatural, but a natural, kind of natural, somewhat healing spring. Bollinger, the brilliant Bollinger from the Companion Study Bible says this, the water was intermittent from the upper springs of the water of Gihon. The common belief of the man expressed in verse 7 is hereby described, all will be clear, if we insert in parentheses thus, for it was said that, an angel came and stirred up the waters. I love how he does that. He's saying basically these intermittent waters that the way they flowed was they just were sporadic. And there was times when they would flow in and they would look like they were bubbling up and they were more agitated than at other times. And so there was this superstitious belief. And I tend to think that's probably where this whole story lands. The takeaway for us is is that we don't know if this pool is legit, but we do know that people can be superstitious... We also know that people are always searching for the source and meaning of life, and many believe they can find it where they cannot find it. So, today's big idea. Pop psychology is no match for biblical theology. And the superstitious beliefs that the world believes in is no match for the rock-solid truth of God's Word. Here's a second lesson. Jesus sees you and cares about you when no one else does. Jesus sees you and he cares about you when no one else does does that's the bottom line sometimes we think no one sees me no one understands me no one gets me well Jesus does that is the reality and on this day this man who has no one to help him no one no friends in the world it seems on this day he will meet Jesus. And the reality is, I think Jesus singles out this one man to represent all men. Like this one man is to represent all of humanity. There are lessons for you and me today, for this whole world today, wrapped up in this one man who's locked in his hopeless and helpless situation. In fact, in just a couple of years, Jesus is going to go to the cross and he's going to hang on the cross and he's going to take on the hopelessness and the helplessness and the isolation that this man has been experiencing for 38 years. He's going to go there. I wonder, though, as I think about this, how does Christ combat our loneliness, the loneliness that you and I experience? How does He combat that loneliness? How does the Holy Spirit combat our loneliness? You know, we've talked about this. Every time I think about this, it just really resonates with me that the attributes of the Holy Spirit, we've talked about this, are so similar to what you would describe a friend to be. It's like the Holy Spirit is that friend that sticks closer than a brother and, and how they combat our loneliness Like we don't have to be lonely in this world today and sometimes we get into seasons of isolation and seasons when no one gets us and no one understands us and we don't know where to turn and who to talk to and who to tell our story to and yet God is there. And we see in this story really as well then, we see in the scriptures as well then the brilliance of the church really. Because how does God use the church to combat our loneliness? What role does the church play? Because as much as I can say, well, the Holy Spirit's my friend and, and God's my father and Jesus is my brother and they're there and, and, and they combat that loneliness in me, the reality is we need the human inter- interaction of each other. We do. That's the thing that was so missed in, in the whole COVID thing. It's like we were so fixated on the physical health of people where people were falling apart emotionally, mentally, and spiritually spiritually. And it's like, no, just shut your shut your churches up. Just lock the doors. No, we're we we are a spirit and a soul and a body. We're a triune being. That's the reality. And the church has an amazing way of combating the loneliness in this world. So Jesus singles out this one man to represent all men, and yet that draws us even deeper into the more of the story. Here is, again, pop psychology. No match for biblical theology. No match for what the Bible says about who Christ is and how he combats our loneliness and who the church is and how they can combat our loneliness. Here's a third lesson. This physical healing carries spiritual implications. So there's this physical healing that's going to take place here and there's some interesting things that surround this physical healing but ultimately it carries spiritual implications and it takes us into the more of the stories. Because yes, this man has a physical need and yes God will meet this man's need but underlining this narrative is this reality that Jesus heals the man physically to reach him spiritually like more important than this man's physical healing is, he, is his eternal relationship with the father through the son and he wants to reach this man spiritually and the, the, the way he does that is that he heals him first physically to reach him on a spiritual level And so he is more concerned with the inner man, with the spirit and the soul, than he is with just the man's physical body. Now the flow of the story here really is odd, because what he does is he comes in and he heals the man, and then he withdraws. Look what it says here in verses 12 through 14. They, the religious leaders, asked him, Who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? The man's been healed. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Isn't that odd? Like he didn't even know who healed him. This is later on that day or some commentary thinks that maybe the next day. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And so here he is in the temple the next day. Some think he's in the temple the next day. He's there giving thanks to God because God healed him. Could be. Some think he hasn't been in the temple for 38 years. He's making up for lost time. He's in the temple, you know. It's like he hasn't been allowed in the temple maybe for 38 years. He's an invalid. He's a diseased. He's been isolated from the temple. I don't know. All conjecture. All we know is that Jesus runs into him in the temple. And Jesus says to him that telling line, See, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you consider some of the spiritual parallels here as we look at the more of the story. For one thing, we could say this, is that the pool can represent man's efforts. It's kind of like religion. Like think man's efforts. M for man, E for effort. Man's effort or my effort. Think me. The pool represents me. I have to get to the pool. I have to get in those waters. I need someone to get me in those waters. And it totally leaves God out of the equation. If I can get to those waters, I can be healed. And yet, he couldn't get to those waters and he couldn't be healed. This is the religion. And this takes us into the more of the story. Now, consider this. Watch this. As you move on down in the text, you see, after the narrative, after the man's story, after the healing and the religious objections, then we get to the more of the story. Because if you look down in verses like down in verses 24 through 29, especially in these verses, we get into some of the more of the story. Some of the moral of the story. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus is now, now the narrative's all done, the story's all done, now he's gonna give us some of this biblical theology here. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And so the pool is representing my effort, my ability to get to God, my ability to save myself. But notice this, that in the story, Jesus came to the man, without being asked. That's Christianity. That's not religion. That's Christianity. That's Christ coming to this earth. No one asked Jesus to come. No one said, we need you to come die for us on the cross. We need you to come save us. Jesus just showed up. Went to the cross. Offers us forgiveness. Offers us His life. Offers to help us escape the judgment of our sin. And here's the thing. So this man hears the words of Jesus and he responds and he takes up his bed and walks, but does he really hear the words of Jesus? Because what Jesus is really saying is he's speaking to him spiritually, speaking to his spirit and his soul spiritually. 25, verse 25. Kind of zeroes in on this even more. Truly, truly, again, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here. Right now is here. The hour is here. It's just happened with this man. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He has just come to this man and said, do you want to be healed? And he's actually asking him for more. He's saying, do you want spiritual life? Do you want to be saved? Do you want, do you want to know the source of life personally? And if you'll hear me and if you'll respond to me, You can be. You can be saved. You can be saved. Remember, we are born as a soul with a spirit that lives in a body, and our spirit is dead to God. I think it's so fascinating there. The dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. The underlying point is that Jesus speaks physical words, or speaks physical words to a lame man, but he's also speaking to his spirit in a way we can't understand. God speaks to the spirit and the dead man can respond. That's the invitation we all have. Everybody on the planet has the opportunity to come to Christ and be saved. And he reaches out to all men. And they don't ask him. No one will seek after God. No one seeks after God. Everybody's gone their own way. Romans 3.10, quoting Isaiah, I believe. But God seeks us out. The difference between religion and Christianity is Christ seeks us out. Christ comes to us, calls out to us, dead in our sins. Verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And in Christ you find the source of all life. should say all life. You find physical life in Christ, right? He created us, but we find spiritual life and eternal life and abundant life. It's all wrapped up in Christ. And the question that he asked the man then, do you want to be healed? This is the ultimate question. Do you want to be saved? Like I have the authority to heal you physically. I have the power to heal you physically, but I can do far more. And don't sin again because there is a sin that will do more damage than just cause you to be, you know, like physically wounded. There's a sin that can separate you eternally from a Holy God. You know, there's a context here and I missed going through this earlier. See, here's the context and and just just add this into your understanding of the story this morning. When he says to this man, you know, you're well now, don't sin anymore that something worse may happen to you. You know the implication there. The implication there is this this man has been an invalid for 38 years and the reason that he's an invalid is that somehow whatever happened to him was the result of his sin. Like he did some sort of reckless sin in his youth. Something 38 years ago that caused him to be injured, to be left in this state. And that's why Jesus says what he says. Okay, now be careful. Go and don't sin anymore. I mean, who can not sin anymore? Of course, we. we nobody can not yeah. sin anymore. But he, what he's saying is he's speaking to this man. Don't, you know, you know what sin did to you last time? And let me tell you, there's, worse effects than being just lame from sin there is the effect of being eternally separated from god the father really 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 powerful you know there's another narrative in here that i think is fascinating and again we've talked about this a little, a little bit later but but this again further makes the further case against limited atonement and election we've talked about this recently and i saw it in the text i think it's so fascinating like, you'd understand, like, it's a really prevalent teaching in this area that, that God elects, that God chooses who's saved and doesn't choose. That, that Jesus only died for some. The atonement was limited to those that he elected. We saw that, like, in the story of the Good Samaritan, right? We saw the folly of that. The story of the Good Samaritan. Who's the Good Samaritan? Jesus is the Good Samaritan. We're the ones left by the side of the road. The Good Samaritan came and rescued us. And then the story tells us, Jesus tells us, who's, the good, who, who's our neighbor? Everybody's our neighbor. I don't pick and choose my neighbor. And I'm telling you, God, as the good Samaritan, didn't pick and choose his neighbor. He didn't just die for some and say, well, I'll save you, but I'm not going to save you. Everybody's his neighbor. Everybody gets the opportunity. And we see the same thing in this story, right? The same narrative unfolds in this story. Look, look what it says again. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And election teaches us that's impossible. election teaches us the reason that, that or people that believe in election believe in that. They say that our spirit is dead. We can't respond to God, so he has to save us. He makes us alive so we can hear his voice and respond to him. Well, right here it's telling us that the dead will hear. The spiritually dead will hear the voice of God and those who hear will live. And here's the reality in this story is that Jesus makes the first move towards us but leaves the decision to us. That's what he does in the story. He heals this man. He says, do you want to be healed? Man doesn't say, yeah, I want to be healed. He's like, well, I I can't get healed. And Jesus is like, no, you want to be healed. Before the man answers, what does he do? He heals him. And that healing is symbolic of what he wants to do for him Spiritually. And so God has come into the world spiritually and he's died for everyone. He's redeemed everyone. He's forgiven everyone. And now he comes to us and says, do you want to be forgiven? Do you want my forgiveness? Do you want my life? Do you want me to redeem you out of your hopelessness and helplessness? Jesus makes the first move, but the decision is ours. Everybody has the free will to make a decision, to say yes or no to Christ. And God is not picking And choosing who is saved and who isn't. One more thing here at the end of this. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Let me just tell you that the proof of our spiritual resurrection is seen in our physical resurrection, and that's why... We walk by faith because we're not going to see the physical resurrection for a long time, but that verse is simply saying there's going to come a time when God's going to call everybody, saved and unsaved, redeemed and unredeemed, those who have put their faith and trust in Christ and those who have going to call them out of the graves, some to eternal life, some to eternal judgment and separation. again, Pop psychology is no match for biblical theology. It cannot explain anything we're talking about this morning. It can't go into all this. It can tell you what you can do to feel better and how to handle your loneliness and how to have a better life. And This is the truth of what the Bible actually says about our relationship with God. Lesson number four, religion is often the enemy of Christ. Oh yeah. Religion is often the enemy of Christ and we see that in the story, right? Isn't it fascinating in the, in the story? Consider this, while on one hand we see the concern of Jesus, the healing of this man, and the deeper spiritual implications, we are also confronted with the religious establishment. And the religious establishment doesn't celebrate with this man, doesn't celebrate that he's been healed. Now that that was the day, verse 9, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And I think they know. They already have their answer. How many people are running run around at this time healing people, especially on the Sabbath? They know who did it. Like Who, who told you to do that? And you know what's really fascinating in the story too? Because what does Jesus do? Jesus comes to the man, right? They they tell him, hey, what are you doing? That's wrong. That's a sin. Jesus comes to the man and says, now you're well. Make sure you don't sin anymore. Which means indirectly when I told you to pick up your mat and walk with it, that wasn't sin. (laughs) That was a celebration. That was freedom. The freedom that we have in Christ. I was thinking about this reality of what religion, how does religion miss the mark? Here's a few examples like religion finds its identity in self. Like religion is all about what I have to do to reach God and religion is all about how good I am and how righteous I am. It's about my self-righteousness and it misses the reality that my righteousness is all wrapped up in Christ. It's all about what He did, that He came to me unprovoked and loved me first and I only love because He loved me. Hmm. And then religion defines God to our liking. Oh, that's what religion does, right? We see it all over the world. Religion comes along and a new religion pops up and they just invent God in their own image. And even in the Christian religion, we can do that. Like we can, like the the, the Jewish people, they had Yahweh. They had this relationship with God. What they do? they Well, they made God into their liking and this is what the law means and this is what the law doesn't mean. Understand that this man carrying his mat on this day He's not violating the law. He's only violating what? Their religious interpretation of the law. Totally missing the fact. And then how about this one? Religion focuses on law over liberty. Right? We have Christ today. We have the law of Christ today written on our heart. We don't need the law written on stone. We have the law written on our heart. We have the freedom in Christ and if I submit to Christ and surrender to Christ, I'll live a life of freedom. I'll live a life of liberty, but I'll live a life that brings glory to God. And here is this man who has the freedom from Jesus to be healed, to take up his mat, to run home, to be a testimony for everybody. I was lame for 38 years. Someone has set me free. Look at me. Look at what God has done for me. And then finally, religious religion exalts the act over the authenticity, right? Like religion is all about, you know, what does our worship look like over is it really authentic? Is it really authentic worship from the heart? That was the the religious leader's greatest issue and Jesus called them out many times because they honored Him with their lips but their hearts were far from Him. John 5, 16 and 17, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. Oh, but Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Do you love the irony there? It's like, you can't work on the Sabbath. And Jesus' is like, Sorry, God's working, and I'm working, and it's the Sabbath, and we're working. Because, you know, honestly, we kind of invented the whole Sabbath thing, and we're kind of like, Yeah. And our work is not violating the law, it's not. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, here's the thing. Jesus never once came out and said, I am God, but he said, I am God. He implied it over and over and over again, and they knew he implied it. They knew that he was saying he was equal to God. They didn't like that. Oh, no, they did not like that. In fact, look as we read on verse 19. Watch this. So Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of God can do nothing of His own authority, of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. He's He's left behind His divine privileges. He's under the authority of the Father and empowered by the Holy Spirit. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may what marvel." for as the father raises the dead and gives life gives them life so also the son gives life to whom he will he's the source of life but understand understand the point here right the reason for this miracle is so that we would marvel like yes he cares about this man and he cares about this man's physical condition and his pain and yes he wants to save this man spiritually not just physically But ultimately, this miracle is so that we would marvel, that we would know, John 20 again, that what? That He is the Christ, the Messiah, and that we can find life in His name. This is the third miracle here in the Gospel of John, the third sign, the third of eight signs, and they're all to cause us to marvel at who Christ is. Pop psychology is no match for biblical theology. You know, you, sometimes you, you hear someone, I get riled up preaching, I get pretty fired up. I know I do. Other pastors do. You know, you can't teach pop psychology that way. Oprah couldn't have somebody come on and give some self-help talk and get fired up like this because it's not spirit-filled. It's not coming from the Father. Wow. Two more lessons. Christ and the gospel calls us out of our victimhood. Let's go back to verse 9 again. Remember that question he says to the man, do you want to be healed? It's a pretty simple question. Do you want to be healed? What does the man say? Oh, yes! No, he says, well, I just can't get in the pool. No one will help me. I'm just a victim. I've been a victim for 38 years. I wish someone would help me out. Jesus is like, okay, hey, you're not going to be a victim anymore. When I'm done today, you won't be a victim anymore. You don't have to be. I'm going to set you free from your victimhood. The reality is we have been set free. Galatians 5.1, to what? Live free. We have been made alive, what? To live like we're alive. God didn't give us abundant life so we wouldn't live with abundant life. And I wonder how many of us today have been made alive in Christ and we're not truly living. We're free in Christ, but we're not truly free. We're not living like we're free. Luke four eighteen, Jesus speaking about his own, his own mission. Quoting Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Let me tell you, if you were like, if you were like lame for like 40 years and then one day someone touched you and healed you, and you could walk again, how would you respond? Maybe like that guy in Acts 3 that ran through the temple hooting and hollering like, woo Peter has healed me. Or if you were blind for like 40 years and then one day someone came along and gave you back your sight, how would you respond? Would you be like, oh, thank you. Or would you do cartwheels? Would you go on Facebook? Would you tweet it all over the place? I can see again. I can see again. See, here's the reality, can I tell you this? I can be victimized without being a victim. A little secret for all of us who know Christ. Like, we can be victimized in life, like we can be abused, and we can be slandered, and we can be stolen from. Someone was just asking this week about forgiveness. Like, how do I deal with forgiveness? How do I, I want to forgive somebody? And as we talked, I'm like, I think you've forgiven them. But the difference is, is that Just because we forgive someone doesn't mean we forget what they did and that we don't hurt from what they did. So we can be victimized and we can hurt without being a victim. That's the reality. That is the message of the cross. Think about it. That's the message of the cross. We can be victimized by a drunk driver, an abusive spouse, through identity theft, an unjust boss. But here's one thing that no one can ever do. No one can ever steal your identity in Christ. And you are a victor in Christ, you are not a victim, and you need to know that. We need to know that. I need to know that. We all need to know that because there's all times, there's all periods, there's probably some time this week when we lived as a victim. When we called up in our little silent world and we were isolated from everybody else and we, like, what a victim I am. How unfair that that would happen to me. As I said, that's the point of the cross. Jesus was victimized, right, in his, in his earthly ministry. He was victimized on the cross for six hours he was victimized. For the final three hours, when darkness fell on the land, he was especially victimized as he took on sin and he took on death and he actually went in, I believe that's when he had ascended into hell on the cross there, taking all our sin, taking on spiritual death for three hours. He was victimized. But here's the point. He was victimized, but he was never a victim. The cross didn't win. Jesus won. Sin didn't win. Jesus won. Satan didn't win. Death didn't win. Darkness didn't win. Jesus won. He came out of that grave. He was the victor. You can be victimized. You don't have to be a victim. How do you know? Maybe some warning signs when you're living as a victim. Maybe when you get stuck in life. You ever get stuck in life like you just can't get out of this rut? You're just stuck. There's there's a sin you can't defeat or a behavior you can't get past, and it just keeps beating you up. And stop living as a victim and say, I have the victory in Christ. My identity is in Christ. Christ has come into me and and given me give me a renewed purpose and called me to serve him for his glory. I don't I don't need to be stuck. Maybe when we primarily associate with others who share our problems, we're good at doing that, right? I remember growing up, uh, growing up, I guess growing up, but I remember back 20 years ago, you know, Shad was really young at the time, about six or seven, and we would go to support groups for other parents who had autistic kids, Nothing wrong with support groups. Nothing wrong with that at all. Don't, don't hear me say that's wrong. I'm just saying, I one if our tendency sometimes can be to get in support groups of people who can all identify with how we've been victimized. We're just a bunch of victims sitting around complaining about our life. How about when we identify ourselves by our former injustice? Like when we just wallow in what was done, the wrong that was done to us, then you're living as a victim. Like, again, you can be victimized. You can, you can feel hurt. You can feel pain. You can remember it. You may remember it till the day you die. But you don't have to be victimized by it any longer. You, you don't have to be the victim. You can find victory over it. And I'm sure that the more and the longer that you live that way, there will come a time and point when God will take that memory and totally erase it from your life. And then finally, lastly, when we can't let go of the story Even the hurt. And again, there's a fine line here again between letting go of the story and the narrative and letting go of the hurt. That'll take longer. That's okay. It'll take a while. I understand there's a difference there. I think in time, God will take away that hurt. God will take away that pain. You'll let it go. It might take a while. But if, you know, 40 years later, you can't let go of the hurt, Maybe you just need to evaluate. Am I living as a victim? There's a fine line, too, between letting go of the story and then taking that story and using that narrative to bring glory to God. To say, This is my testimony. This is what God brought me out of. This is what God brought me. That's how I lived for 38 years. And look where I am today. And I'm no longer a victim of myself, my sin the enemy, this world, or anyone. One last lesson, coming full circle then. Catch this, I can be the miracle that people marvel at. Like, I can be the miracle that people marvel at. Like, right, why did Jesus do this this sign, this miracle? So we would marvel. So we would say, look, it's the Messiah. It's the Messiah, And he has life for us. He has freedom for us. He has victory for us and hope for us. And the reality is that I actually, coming full circle, when I process everything we talked about today, when I come to the source of life, when I realize that pop psychology is no match for biblical theology, when I get to that point, then I can actually be the miracle that people marvel at. There's a thing to just get rid of the the superstitious side of life, right? There's a thing of, of seeing the physical, of seeing the spiritual over the physical and coming to terms with those things. Here's how I wrapped it up. Here's a statement for us. As we see past the physical to the spiritual, as we find our identity in Christ, as we leave behind the emptiness of religion and let go of our victimhood, we can then be the miracle of life people will marvel at and glorify God in. I don't know about this man. The ironic part of this whole story, we never are told what this man did spiritually with his life. We are never told. You can read commentary and, and some think, you know, that when he went to the religious leaders and said, hey, it's Jesus, he healed me. Some think, oh, he was, he was protecting his own rear end, you know, and calling out Jesus. Others think he was honoring Jesus. You know, we don't, there's so much conjecture when you read these stories. You just don't ultimately know. All we know is that God came to him when he wasn't asked. God offered him. He healed him physically, offered him more. If he could just hear spiritually, God was offering him more if he would just receive it. And he could have a personal relationship with the Source of life. Let me leave you this morning with this. This is a bit of a true story. I can't remember the name, so I will call him anyone. Anyone went to school with me, a class ahead of me, I believe. And I think he was like 16 years old. There was one of those high school parties, and he went. There he indulged in a little too much alcohol, which can be common for a high school party and yet also very dangerous. It was a fall evening when a bunch of friends left that party and proceeded to the house of someone with a swimming pool. There this young man was challenged to jump off the diving board on a cold fall night into their pool, which he did. The only issue, and you can probably guess where this is going, the pool had been drained for the year. Moments later, the certain someone lies on his back at the bottom of this empty pool, never to walk again. And now 38 years later, there is someone who is not just lame physically, but he is an invalid emotionally, even spiritually, unable to move past his mistake of over 38 years ago. So the story kind of shifts there from what really happened to what does happen. Time and time again. People who are lame, not just physically, but they're an invalid emotionally and even more so spiritually, their spirits are dead to God. And then let's just suppose that one day this certain someone was encountered by Jesus, the source of life. He was encountered by Jesus and challenged to take another dive, this time, into the arms of a loving, forgiving, and healing Savior. He was invited, like the layman in today's story, to take this dive and realize that there was more to the story. There was more to his story. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for these stories. And, you know, as I study, I just... Sometimes I just never can sense how overwhelmed I'm going to be by where this ends and by what you leave us with to take home. I don't know what anybody today is dealing with. All of us, in some corner of our life, we've battled with the, the failures of religion, of empty religion. And then at the same time, all of us in this room have some, in some way been victimized and We're challenged all the time to not live as a victim. I don't know where this message lands for for all of us today. And I don't know if there's anybody in this room today and their spirit is still dead to God. Ah, May they just know that you have come to them. Unprovoked, you have come to them and you said, I'll heal you spiritually. I'll give you eternal life, spiritual life, abundant life. You just have to receive it. Receive my forgiveness and receive my life. I'll make your spirit alive and you and me can be one. Thank you for this good day. As we leave today, Lord, as we go out into the world today, may our eyes be open to those people around us who are laying outside of their own pool of Bethesda that are looking for answers. They're looking for life. They're looking. They're searching. May we, like Jesus, go to them and say, hey, would you like to be healed?